0: Hello. In November 1666, Lady Margaret Denham, a prominent member of Charles II's court, and mistress to the future King James II, fell ill. She died two months later. Diarist Samuel Pepys records, I hear that my Lady Denham is exceeding sick, even to death, and that she says, and everybody else discourses, that she is poisoned. It could even, Pepys writes, have been a plot to kill the king. The poison was concealed in a cup of hot chocolate. Despite having captured the public imagination at the time, Margaret Denham's death has become an unimportant footnote in 17th century history. In this series, we explore her life and death in detail, investigating one of the most high-profile homicide cases of the Restoration. I'm Romy Nuttall, and I'm here with Sophie Shawland to finally find out who hath done it.
1: Welcome to episode five, in which we finally get around to investigating Margaret Denham's husband, John Denham, a.k.a. Jilted John. Poor John. (laughs) Poor old John. You might ask why we didn't look at him first, especially considering (laughs) his clear position as a jealous husband. And if we were police investigators, we would have been fired. Yeah, definitely. But why why do we have to always go down the the tried and
0: tested route of looking at the husband first? And to be
1: honest, I think... (laughs) We just hadn't really heard of him as a poet before, and therefore we were interested in these women who we knew about and already loved and thought were so interesting. So that's where we started our investigation. It's true. And for us,
0: the Duchess of York, Anne Hyde, seemed to have as easily clear a motive as John Denham. Remember, it is... Her husband, James, Duke of York, who Margaret Denham is having her very public affair with. So, really, this affair provides the motive for two suspects. Yeah. Yeah. We chose to investigate Anne Hyde as the jealous wife Mm. before we looked at the jealous husband. And it was said at the time that Anne Hyde was haunted by Margaret's ghost, and she was the object of most slander around the time of of Margaret's death. So we looked at her first. And then we set off down the path of Lady Rochester, another suspect, or suspects, as we ended up asking. And if you've already listened to previous episodes, you will know that that part of our investigation took a bit longer than anticipated, but... Such is the nature of research. (laughs) Yeah,
1: the sacrifices we are making for this investigation are (laughs) obviously huge. So having explored both possible Lady Rochesters, Elizabeth Mallet and Henrietta Hyde, we're now finally turning to Margaret Denham's jealous husband. Was he seen as guilty at the time? Can we see him as guilty now? Who was he? What kind of person was he? And most importantly, Can looking at him get us any closer to figuring out who hath done it?
0: (laughs) Our favourite court gossip, Anthony Hamilton, described John Denham as one of the brightest geniuses England had ever produced. He was a famous poet. He translated bits of the Aeneid into English. He was surveyor of the king's works, which is a kind of sort of early modern architectural role. He was a trained lawyer. He was rich and clever. He was one of the first elected fellows of the newly formed Royal Society, which is a scientific institution founded for the promoting of psych... No, not psychophysio. Mathematical what, what is it, experimental what is that word? learning. Physical. Physical. Yeah. Physical. Basically like early science. This yeah. is a time when they're really starting to I don't know, like use the telescope and stuff like that, isn't it? No, actually <clears throat> they were using the telescope before.
1: No, but they're starting to measure like the trajectory of comets and stuff using telescopes. So yeah, although they've been invented for a while, it's like and and partly this research into the trajectory of comets and into their orbits um, helps Newton come up with a the theory of gravity. And he's he's a member of the Royal Society. He's sort of around at this time. So, yeah, it's it's the beginning of almost, like, the scientific method and yeah. science as we know it. Yeah, and, and John Denham's
0: a part of that. He's a, he's a fellow of the Society. This is who he's kind of rubbing shoulders with. So, you know, mm. clever guy. And aged 50 at the time of their marriage to Margaret's 23, we think he seems like a silver fox <laughs> who would have attracted the lively and ambitious Margaret. Antiquarian and gossip collector John Aubrey describes John Denham as of the tallest, but slightly bent at the shoulders, not very robust, with a stalking gait and piercing grey eyes that looked into your very thoughts.
1: He <laughs> Sounds quite attractive, really.
0: Yeah, and when we first looked at his portrait, which we're we're looking at now. It's an engraving. He looks
1: sort of like he has quite nice cheekbones, quite well-defined, quite like them. He has a relatively big nose, very fashionable at the time, very attractive. He has, like, one of those really funny goatee mustache combinations. Oh uh, yeah, where the beard is just like a horizontal line down the centre of his chin. Yeah, which was very popular in Charles Charles the First Day, so it sort of hints mm. at his age and maybe that he's slightly part of an older generation than his wife. He looks like maybe he's wearing a periwig, but it could also be his natural hair. Because it's not that voluminous, in which case he has a cracking hair. Great hair. hair. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he also has, the first time we looked at his portrait together, Sophie exclaimed,
1: oh, what great eyebrows he has.
0: (laughs) So he's got great eyebrows, He does have great eyebrows,
1: yeah. (laughs) He's got the slightly heavy-lidded looks, like this sort of soulful poet. Yeah. Which I imagine to, like, you know, early 20-year-old woman... Would be extremely attractive. Yeah, Yeah. it's like, ooh, he's so soulful. I can commune with him. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He does have in his engraving this kind of, this wise, sort of
1: staring off into the distance, thoughtfully look. So, John Denham was certainly seen as guilty, despite his poetic stare, by by many people at the time of Margaret Denham's death, or at least by those people who didn't have another favorite suspect, like Anne Hyde or the Countess's Rochester. Hamilton records that a lot of the general public were convinced that Denham was the murderer, and remember that Margaret was a prominent figure, so her illness and death were big, big news. Think like Hello! Magazine, Celebrity Gossip, and... It was such big news that when her death was announced, there was actually a riot outside her marital home. Huge.
0: Here is Hamilton's account of these events. As no person entertained any doubt of his, that's John Denham's, having poisoned her, the populace of his neighbourhood had a design of tearing him in pieces as soon as he should come abroad. But he shut himself up to bewail her death until their fury was appeased by a magnificent funeral at which he distributed four more times burnt wine than had ever been drunk at any burial in England. (laughs) Okay, so from Hamilton we get that John Denham is seen as unavoidably guilty by the general public. So guilty that they want to tear him to pieces. Pretty unequivocal.
1: Yeah, and I feel like Hamilton's almost suggesting that he bribed the mob by giving them lots of Burnt wine. Burnt wine. So that sort of suggests guilt as well. But then he also says that John Denham shut himself up in the house to bewail Margaret's death. So is that the action of a guilty man? And if the mob is so easily appeased by just being given out some free wine, (laughs) they can't have been that convinced with evidence that John Denham had killed his wife.
0: No, it's true. And in some ways also if you do have an angry mob outside your house convinced that you've killed your wife, surely your best option is just to stay inside (laughs) and pretend to be grief-stricken. But anyway, so from Hamilton, we get definite evidence that people at the time thought John Dedham was guilty, but it's a bit ambiguous when you start unpacking it before we move on though i would just like to say that i love that one of margaret denham's claims to fame is that there was four times more burnt wine drunk at her funeral than had ever been drunk at an english <laughs>
1: funeral before <laughs> i want to top that with my funeral yeah. <laughs> that's, that's what i'm gonna put in my will
0: <laughs> for those who don't know I'm, I'm pretty sure that burnt wine is brandy so i think the people at margaret denham's funeral must have been pretty wasted
1: yeah 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 Pretty pissed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> in more ways than one. <laughs> on the one hand, John Denham's seen as guilty, and he definitely has a clear motive. His wife was having an affair with the Duke of York. But on the other hand, he seemed to be publicly grief-stricken and goes all out for the funeral. Is he a very clever strategist, working hard to cover his own tracks, or is he a bereft and genuinely grieving widow? I
0: think this would be a good point at which to go back to the beginning of John Denham's relationship with Margaret. In many ways, this relationship should be at the centre of our podcast, but it somehow isn't or hasn't been. Margaret Denham's affair with the Duke of York has really shifted it out to the limelight. So
1: they were married in May 1665, which means they most likely started getting close sometime in 1663. Margaret would have been in her early 20s, around four years into her glamorous life of the court elite living in London with her socialite uncle, the Earl of Bristol. Relishing in the freedoms of the world, she was young, confident, and by all accounts, clever and gorgeous. She had a charisma that was irresistible and attracted the king and his brother to dine at her uncle Bristol's house.
0: John Denham would have been in his late 40s, remember he was 50 when they married, and I think he would have represented many things that Margaret wanted. He had a 20-year history of living, working, and writing in court circles. He wrote a play, The Sophie, that was acted by the King's Men at the fashionable Blackfriars Theatre... That's the one that the indoors candlelit theatre, the Sam Wanamaker Playhouse at the Globe, is modelled on. Go
1: and see it if you haven't. It's really oh, great. yeah, it's
0: such a great, so great, great place. to go there. Yeah. Yeah. The Sophie, John Denham's play, was performed. I keep thinking you're calling me. Oh, yeah, no, sorry. <laughs> the Sophie, for clarification, guys, it's the Sophie, S-O-P-H-Y, as in a uh, Persian... Leader. Me- yeah. yeah. Yeah, not my name. No. Mm. Denham's play was performed at the Black Prize before the Civil Wars or just before them, in 1642. So he was already a person of interest then. Remember, he also translated bits of the Aeneid. Must have been pretty great at Latin.
1: Yeah. yeah pretty great
0: reader and thinker.
1: Yeah, he was probably a really great person for Margaret Jenner to talk to. Like, really intelligent, yeah. extremely well-read. And also at a time when, despite his translation and some earlier translations, a lot of classical work wasn't available if you didn't mm. speak the languages. And women often weren't educated in mm. those languages. So great if you have a willing swain to translate for you if you want to read them yeah
0: and actually another another poet civil war women's poet lucy hutchinson actually Mm. copied bits of denham's translations into her commonplace book i mean she could read that in yeah
1: and she translated lucretius uh, didn't she yeah
0: yeah so the fact that another translator is is copying bits of his translation Mm. into her copy commonplace book um her kind of like personal notebook um Speaks volumes for it, really.
1: Yeah, it's probably a good translation. Yeah, I love the Ineid. Exactly. It's a cracking story, yeah. generally. So as well as being great at Latin, um, <laughs> he was also really, really in with the court. And he attended Henrietta Maria and Charles II in exile. And in 1661, big moment, he organized Charles II's coronation. So really important established member of their court yeah
0: you definitely pick someone that you trust and like and get on with to organize your coronation yeah imagine if it all
1: goes wrong and the horses bolt and all the canopies fall down
0: yeah and like pageants and floats aren't ready at the right time like yeah it'd be a nightmare
1: yeah you know there's still the office of the pageant master is that it's really cute it's like a civil servant but he's the official pageant master and he like rides in the processions and stuff does he does he do the lord mayor's show yeah i think so yeah I love these idiosyncrasies that we still have Mm. in the UK, because it's so old, we have all these weird titles for things, and I love that. John Denham was close to Henrietta Maria, which means he was opposed to Edward Hyde's factions. We've already talked about how Edward Hyde and Henrietta Maria absolutely did not get along with one another. And this is the faction to which Margaret Denham also belongs.
0: So clearly, John Denham was part of the kind of anti-Hyde court faction. And these connections undoubtedly led to their meeting. The Earl of Bristol, who Margaret was living with, was part of this group too. And they've probably known each other since Margaret Denham came to London as the, you know, the elite. It was actually a really small group and and everyone knew one another.
1: It's only a couple of hundred people, so you go
0: back... Yeah, the elite is small.
1: It's really small. The population in general is really small, but the elite's extra tiny. This is slightly speculative, but it's thought that maybe his position and his high status at court, his relationship with the Queen Mother, had something to do with Margaret Denham being officially re recognised as a Baron's daughter six days before their wedding, which kind of gave her extra fancy wedding options. So, if you remember from back in way back in episode one, Margaret Denham's family, the Brooke family, had lost their title of Baron Cobham as her rather idiotic great-uncle was one of the conspirators in the treason of the main plot back in 1603, which aimed to replace King James I and Sixth with his cousin, Lady Arbella Stuart. So he was kind of restoring her, helping to restore her to her titles almost. And mm-hmm. this kind of we know that Margaret Denham was quite attracted by status and this yeah, probably. And that she was really ambitious. She was really ambitious. I'm sure this went down really well with her and probably is something that attracted her to John Denham as a husband. He was part of the old guard but still cool, tall, handsome, piercing eyes. Yeah, I love thinking about who would
0: play him. I kind of got as far as George Clooney. Um, i sort of thinking along those lines, like, mm. grey but piercing eyes. eyes.
1: Yeah. Kind of, George Clooney's, like, really old now, isn't he? <laughs> but he's not actually, I am thinking he's, so, he's older than 50, because, mm. is he? Yeah, that's
0: true. Fifty's really not that old uh, to yeah. us anymore. No, now that we're old. Yeah. <laughs> we're not old. We're still young. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, for Margaret Denham, John Denham would have been, as well as marrying someone intelligent, someone witty and great at conversation like her, he would have also been a way of gaining power, prestige and influence. And we said in episode one that we thought it was highly likely that they were in love at the time of their marriage and when they met. It's important to reassert that idea here. No one was forcing Margaret into this marriage, as far as we know. It was not an Elizabeth Mallet with or her sort of queuing up suitors, not allowed to marry any of them without her grandfather's permission situation.
1: Mm. Yeah, and her family seems to have approved, probably because of Denham's ties with Henrietta Maria. But I think they also sort of chose each other as well, you know, flirting over the card table, mm. dancing and quipping together. They're both very intelligent, witty people as well as having an office of court. Denham was a well-known poet, and I think Margaret Denham would have loved that element of their flirtation. Maybe he wrote her the odd off the cuff. Oh, I wish those had line. survived, <laughs> yeah.
0: I think this is a, a great place to introduce my john denham as the thames theory (laughs) so hold on to you guys for me the poem cooper's hill which is really the poem that made denham's name and reputation as a poet and it's a poem where he writes about himself as the river and i think That is a big clue as to his character, his general demeanour, what Margaret would have seen in him. So the poem Cooper's Hill was very popular from the time of its first publication in 1642. Cooper's Hill is a real place. It's in Egham, in between London and Windsor. And you can see both of those places from there. They both feature in the poem. So it's very clearly political poem, even though it's a kind of, you know, reflection on and a mediation on landscape. And the poet is standing in a real landscape, thinking about historical and moral, ethical issues. He's looking down at the Thames, curling through the landscape, when he says, "'Oh, could I flow like thee, and make thy stream, my great example, as it is my theme, though deep, yet clear, though gentle, Yet not dull, strong without rage, without overflowing, uh, flowing,
1: full. <laughs> but don't you think it's convincing, Sophie? Yeah, I think definitely. And I think it's what really struck me about those lines, actually, is... I think we've talked before about the importance of manners in the Restoration, sort of being the perfect Mm. conversationalist, fashionable but not obsessed with fashion, Mm. wealthy without seeming to think about wealth. And Denham, for me in this poem, he wants to be this perfect medium, strong but not showing off and raging, gentle without being boring, a deep thinker but easy to get on with and able to explain things. The perfect is. middle way the
0: perfect medium yeah and uh, also what I think is really important is that Denham added these lines at a more mature stage of his life in time for the 1655 edition of the poem so he was in his late 30s not his mid to late 20s uh, when he wrote the first version so I think these lines are really helpful for thinking about how Denham was or how he wanted to be and how he would have presented himself how he would have appeared to Margaret when they met in the early 1660s. It seems like they were a perfect match, and the couple had already known and liked one another for a good few years before they got married. So, what went wrong?
1: (sighs) What did go wrong? (laughs) Well... I mean, it's a bit difficult to say about any relationship, really, isn't it? Quite what happens on the inside. But some things we know. John Denham had long-term leg problems and walked with a crutch. Antiquarian Aubrey sneered at him for being ancient and limping at the time of his marriage. The following year, in early March 1666, his leg got worse. The king's physician... Valentine Great Rakes. Oh, such a good name. <laughs> such a good name. <laughs> right up there with Pembroke Brook. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing will ever beat Pembroke Brook. <laughs> but Valentine Great Rakes is a name that you would actually want to be called. Like, I wish I could rename myself Valentine Great Rakes. <laughs> it's so good. Anyway, Valentine Great Rakes try, tried to cure him. Unfortunately, John Denham's health deteriorated further when he was sent off to the West Country to inspect stone quarries on the Isle of Portland in Dorset. The Isle isn't a full-on island. It's connected to the mainland by Chessel Beach. So he didn't have to take long boat trips or anything. But getting to Dorset was still a big trip from London on uncomfortable, deeply rutted roads in a carriage with really poor suspension by our standards. Like, yeah. And these aren't proper roads. They're not properly packed. So you get the wheel ruts. Not comfortable. And Denham would have presumably had to be have been up and down the quarry inspecting stone. Quite an intense job.
0: Yeah, for someone with a bad leg, really not what you want to be doing. No, But he had to do this. This was all part and parcel of his really quite serious sounding job as surveyor of the King's works. A job that extended from quarries in Dorset to pavements in Hoban, something that he was noted for installing by John Evelyn. And it also extended to things like designs for a new palace at Greenwich. Apparently Denham rejected Evelyn's designs for the palace
1: (laughs) did did Evelyn not like him I don't think Evelyn liked him very much he's pretty sneering
0: about the paved zones actually he's a bit like oh that's all you've managed to do
1: (laughs) so he was in charge of all the king's properties and buildings their construction and maintenance a really massive job the surveyor before him was Inigo Jones uh, Ben Johnson's arch rival if you've heard of that sort of relationship but also kind of collaborator designed all the stage sets for the but they were always trying well ben johnson was always trying to say that oh yeah he um, did all the work that he did all the work and inigo jones just sort of was not really an artist but really cool designer really amazing designer yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. designed the banqueting house at whitehall you can look at some of his costumes and there are these amazing (gasps) very fantastical images and some extremely risque as well like there's one where One of the costumes goes below the women's breasts, which was sort of a fashion
0: at the time. So really interesting that Inigo Jones goes from mask costumes to being surveyor
1: of the king's works. (laughs) It's a pretty big leap. Yeah. But I think he was a kind of genius, really. Today we're much more specialised, whereas people at the time, you can sort of see from John Denham that he was into architecture, he was into science, he was a poet. And at the time, that's way more normal, whereas Mm. we expect to specialise in one area today. At this period in history, I think
0: it was... This is the kind of the last period in history that it was possible to to know everything. People like Inigo Jones, like Christopher Wren, who was actually the next surveyor of works after Inigo Jones... No, after John Denham, Mm. which is pretty cool. Wren, um, architect, built St Paul's Cathedral. Amazing intellectuals and it was kind of possible to know everything then Mm. about lots of different subjects because not as much stuff was discovered.
1: Yeah, you can't sort of spend three years researching algae and reading all the literature on it because there's like one book written on algae. I'm saying that because I have a friend who has a PhD (laughs) on algae. I
0: love algae. (laughs) I'd always want to know more about algae. Anyway, let's get back to the Surveyor of the Works. So
1: the Surveyor of the Works... Before Denham was Inigo Jones. Then it was Christopher Wren. And these are like really leading lights in architecture. So Denham wasn't kind of the same level really because he wasn't a designer or architect. But he was a very competent administrator and he does seem to have taken his job quite seriously, you know, going into quarries with his bad leg. Yeah, Um, He left most of the actual architectural building side of things to Inigo Jones's nephew, John Webb who was totally passed over for the post by Charles II, as Charles had promised it to Denham privately years before. Webb even petitioned Charles to make him surveyor instead, but such was Denham's favour with the king that Charles stuck with him. So there Denham is in Dorset, inspecting
0: these quarries with his bad leg, and he falls ill. So ill that not only does his wife have to come and look after him, she deigns to leave the pleasures of London and, no doubt, the arms of the Duke of York on the 7th of April. But Denham is so ill that he also went mad.
1: Yeah, and we don't know if... This is a bit difficult because we don't know if Denham suffered a stroke, if he had a nervous breakdown, because at the time, mad in Mm. the 17th century sort of means everything it could be uh, some sort of medical real medical issue or it could be um, a mental health episode well it's hard to know what actually
0: went on like mm. with his body and mind like sophie said did he have a stroke did he have a nervous breakdown and um, it's also quite hard in a way that that you can actually refer to this because we have so many more ways of considering mental illness and instability but back mm. then it was a bit, well, it was a lot more brutal and kind of clear-cut. You'd either sort of got your mind or you hadn't. That really seems to be how, how Denham was, was treated and talked about um, yeah. after he had suffered this period
1: of, of illness. So, for example, the Marquis of Ormond writes that this great master of wit and reason is fallen quite mad, and he who despised religion now in his distraction raves of nothing else. Gossip at the time speculated that his illness was the result of insane jealousy at his wife's very public affair with the Duke of York. So, yeah, it's really interesting sort of what's happening here and also that he seems to be raving about religion. Is this to Mm. do with the sort of sin of adultery that he thinks Mm. is being committed? Is he kind of turning to God after this quite hedonistic, courtly life? And let's
0: think about the timing here. So he would have returned to London in the summer of 1666 when Margaret Denham's affair with James, Duke of York, was at its peak. She had had her visit from him with all his retinue in June, which was really um, unheard of that a a member of the royal family would go in public to visit their mistress. Mm. So the affair was clearly not slowing down. That could still have been a factor in causing Denham's distress Okay, so another thing, Margaret goes to visit him to look after him um, down in the West Country in April. Does she do that under duress? Could Denham have somehow made her do it from afar? Did her family make her? Or did she decide to go herself? Is this a wife who genuinely cares for her husband and wants to help him? You know, Remember in the world that she's been a young adult in, it's it's totally normal to have affairs if you're an elite woman. In fact, it's almost expected As Hamilton writes, Lady Middleton, Lady Denham, the queens and the duchesses, maids of honour, and a hundred others, bestow their favours to the right and to the left. Not the least notice is taken of their conduct. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's it's normal for her, this
1: this kind of behaviour. Yeah, and maybe their relationship was functional in a non-exclusive way, sort of like an open relationship. and. she could be the wife of John Denham but the mistress of James and genuinely love both of them or at least like both of them maybe John Denham expected it too marrying such a young attractive well-connected woman and maybe his madness was totally unrelated despite the gossip going around at the time yeah
0: or was her affair a product of his failing uh, mental and physical health By September, he'd recovered enough to return to his official duties, but was said not to have recovered his former understanding in any measure, yet spoke very good sense. So he was still clever, but not as clever as he was before. And it's a real tragedy. And, you know, if you follow this line, maybe his malady gets worse as his wife's affair continues, and eventually,
1: drives him to murder her I
0: mean Mm. sounds quite plausible when you put it like that
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah and I think imagine what it's like being John Denham everyone you know even people you don't know because you're sort of a celebrity everyone knows that your wife is sleeping around and then your leg sort of fails you and then you go mad people even start writing poems about how mad you are it's really (laughs) horrendous there may have been other
0: circulating manuscript verses and satires, but one that survives is a mock celebration of Denham's coming out of madness by a contemporary poet and politician, Samuel Butler. It's titled, A Pangeric, which is a, a praise poem, A Pangeric Upon Sir John Denham's Recovery from His Madness. And it opens with lines that show Denham was known for his wit. So it opens with, Sir, you've outlived so desperate a fit as none could do but an immortal wit.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: poor guy. Yeah, and Butler is very rude about Denham in this poem. He paints him as proud, a cheat, a gambler, someone who's prepared to swindle the king from his official position as surveyor of the works. It's really vicious. Um, the poem also has him doing battle with his crutch, so sending up his, his lameness. The whole thing, the whole poem was, is couched in terms of sort of highly ironic double negative. The poem presents his madness as a cure, so a period that improved Denham and made him grow better. Mm. even though, of course, it wasn't that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it goes through this whole list of things that he didn't do when he was mad, like claiming other people's writing as his own, running royal buildings and the works in a corrupt way. It says, passing broken rubbish for whole bricks, false mustering of workmen by the day, deduction out of wages and dead pay. So the implication is that Denham normally does do all of these terrible things, Pulled no lodgings down to build them worse, repaired others to repair your purse.
0: There's also a comment on his relationship with Margaret Denham in the poem, the bit where it goes, A a maggot first breeds in his pregnant urn, which after does to a young phoenix turn. So your hot brain burned in its native fire, did life renewed and vigorous youth acquire. So I feel like Margaret is this maggot, this sort of youthful phoenix, uh, which kind of John Denham's life
1: acquires. I I read it as like, sort of like that, but that the maggot first breeds in his pregnant urn, like it's a maggot of an idea that gets into his sort of pregnant brain, seething with thoughts, and then it turns its attention to a phoenix to try and, get some vitality from this phoenix so it's almost saying that John Denham's like a parasite on his wife sucking her youth out because he wants to be young Mm. as well whatever specifics we are or aren't reading into this poem
0: it certainly shows the kinds of rumours that were circulating around John Denham at the time of his wife's death and what a kind of unflattering idea of him there was in public culture at the time he's said to be immoral, to have stolen other people's work, to be embezzling money, to be a sexually immoral, to be a parasite trying to drain the youth from his young wife.
1: Yeah, not, a, not good. <laughs> not a guy you want to hang out with. And so does this deeply unflattering portrait suggest that he was our culprit? People seem to have seen him as a morally bankrupt person. So might he have plotted to kill his wife? I mean, certainly in this poem, he doesn't come across as having many morals. <laughs> no, or, or really any good qualities. <laughs> no. And he had a history of mental instability. So we might actually say we could make the argument that perhaps he wasn't really conscious of what yeah, he was doing. Yeah, not, not in control of his actions yeah. or has less control. He seems to have had a bit of a personality change at some point in this year. Mm. And maybe that sort of... And made him more impetuous. And also, he must have been really frustrated because he couldn't take any action against James, Duke of York, because James was the heir to the throne and extremely powerful, so the only possible scapegoat was Margaret Denham. And he was probably really jealous. And
0: it's it's a repeat of the poor Earl of Chesterfield, who we heard about in episode one. His
1: wife who, wearing the green stockings. Yes, cover she up the green her, stockings. Her ugly feet.
0: <laughs> but she was also having an affair with James, and the Earl, her husband, was deeply hurt and just packed her off to the ma- their manor in the Peak District, and was sneered at and ridiculed for being affronted by her inconstancy. And he was hugely angry, but he couldn't call out James in a duel because of James's position. So,
1: the same thing was happening to John Denham and we're getting into really complex issues surrounding gender norms and sexual behavior in the restoration here so I think it's important that we consider adultery and the way society viewed it and so far in this podcast we've been talking more about the surprisingly free way English women could express their sexuality could have affairs but how is that balanced by male behaviour and the figure of the husband, the cuckold, is watching his wife have these affairs? Yeah. And there was a real
0: obsession with the cuckold. old um, so a man whose wife is known or suspected of adultery in the early modern period it comes into all types of literature. It's in loads of ballads, loads of plays. I think Shakespeare comedies to tragedies. It's Merry Wives of Windsor and Othello. In the restoration stage comedies, adultery is a real kind of cause for jest. The Country Wife in 1675 and one maybe less well-known, Three London Cookolds in 1681. (laughs) And restoration comedy is sort of you know, in general, it often features a miserly old cuckold character, and is full of plots from sort of more attractive men plotting to sleep with other men's wives. The main character, or one of the main characters in Witcherly's The Country Wife, is a rake called Horner. Uh get it? Because the symbol of being a cook is that you have horns yeah. on your head.
1: <laughs> I was really slow and I like, didn't get it. <laughs> Romy had to explain it to me.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so there's this ray called Horner and he pretends to be impotent, almost kind of eunuch-like to so all the husbands so that he can get access to all of their
1: wives. Yeah, I love the way he does it of like pretending that he has this medical disorder that means he's had to have half his penis removed. <laughs> <laughs> Which
0: he pretends he's got from like hanging out with um, I think French prostitutes basically.
1: Mm, yeah. maybe, maybe it's
0: a kind of syphilis comment, I don't Do know.
1: Do you know that some people thought syphilis was a cure for the plague and so they went and tried to get syphilis from all the prostitutes oh by the Oh My god. <laughs> and then it just I meant know. that they had two diseases.
0: <laughs> I mean that is fake news at its worst, doesn't it? <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: idiots that's the
0: worst fake news yeah so back to Horner in The Country Wife he also thinks that um, women who have strong disgust to his small penis and intimacy actually want to be seduced so that's part of how he works it all out
1: yeah he decides who he needs to sleep with next it's like the person who's most disgusted by the idea of not having sex
0: and it's it's a lot of fun I think these plays kind of plays that I actually kind of hated studying at university but now I feel like I'm really into them because they're hilarious. Yeah, they're they're hilarious, yeah. Um, And The Country Wife also has this great line near the end, cookholds make themselves. So there's this kind of play on and awareness of male jealousy and how it operates here. Maybe they wrongly suspected wives sometimes in the play they don't, but I think it's a huge part of early modern male psyche.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not just happening on the stage either. Legal records show that it's of constant concern to citizens. So in law courts, neighbours and servants often testified that they've seen this person's wife going into this house with this man, and everyone was watching out for cheating wives all the time. So in the article... The performance of cuckoldry by Kelly Cochrane. They say that the discovery and the discussion of cuckolds was an everyday drama for which the most basic playing space was the neighbourhood, with its inviting thresholds, windows, yards, and passages. Mm. And I, I think I've I've read this. I think we've both read this book, Laura Gowing's book, Domestic Dangers has some really great stuff on this kind of everyday drama. And the discovery of the wife caught in the act, sometimes by the husband, so shocking. So shocking. Move over, EastEnders. Yeah, I know. You you can just read a history (laughs) book and actually have the sort of same impact. So in 1625, for example, William Loder discovered his wife, Elizabeth, having sex with their local tapster, or tapster's barman, because small bars were called tap houses. And he himself told all his friends to sort of, like... That's it. So weird, Yeah, it? to sort of try and get them on side, and I guess because he maybe wanted to control the sort of rumours that were going to go around. Yeah, it's so, like controlling the shame culture. Yeah. So like if you're
0: opening yourself up to that shame rather than other people telling you about it, it'd be more in control
1: of it. He wrote, "'Oh, Lord, would I have never lived to see this day "'for my wife hath undone me.'" <laughs> And then one of his friends didn't understand, or at least like pretended not to understand, and wrote back saying, Oh, have she lost you any leases or writings? (laughs) To which Loder replied, She has disgraced him and stained the honour of his house by playing the whore with his tapster. (laughs) Poor William Loder. Maybe we shouldn't laugh, but Well, he's all (laughs) dead.
0: And it's it's kind of funny. Maybe maybe John Denham did have the same kind of exchanges with his friends. She hath undone me. Yeah. <laughs> with, the, with the discovering, you know, after the discovering of his, of his wife and her lover together, he'd have had to say with the prince rather than, or with his highness rather <laughs> than the her, her tabster. How aware of it was he? Did he talk to his friends about it? Would that have been socially acceptable? Or did he just gradually start to hear about the affair at parties or around the court? I think, also, all well, this is going on at a time when women of all social classes were seen to be lusty, to have insatiable sexual appetites. It's a time when husbands of all classes fear being hornified. or being made a cuckold with his horns.
1: <laughs> yeah, no man was safe. And looking at ballads really drives home how much of an obsession cuckoldry was in this period. Ballads are a sort of cheap print, really affordable, and they're really good at showing us kind of popular ideas at the time because they were really widely circulated and designed to be bought by a mass audience. Yeah, they, they were just on a single sheet of paper, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were often set to music. So if even if you couldn't read, you might still hear the ballad. And actually, people usually read aloud at this time. It was sort of unusual mm. to read in your head. So if you were reading something in your house, you're actually sort of transmitting the information to your whole house, potentially. Charles II's favourite ballad. And a very popular one in general was called "Cookolds All A Row. And there was a special <laughs> dance that the court really liked so to go with the song. Yeah, and the cuckolds are summoned to come forth to gather with their hornified and henpecked brethren armed with shovels to bury all thoughts of your wife's dishonesty. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, being henpecked is another big male fear. Oh, yeah, the other really big male
0: fear. I love, I didn't know that, um, that the court had a special dance for them.
1: The, yeah, I think it was Charles always all re- all re- Charles always requested it at balls. Brilliant. Yeah. So yeah,
0: must have been. Imagine knowing you wear a cuckold and then you have to dance in that dance, oh, and God, everyone's watching it's so you. So humiliating. Yeah. So another great cuckold's ballad. This one slightly earlier from the 1630s. Cuckold's Haven. It has this great woodcut illustration on it, which has a gentleman standing outside a house calling, look out! And you can actually see the words in the speech bubble. I love that kind of... I love of, it when they do that, yeah. yeah such great early modern touch. There's a man looking out of an upper window. He's the one who has to look out. And there are actually horns on a stick outside the house. And this is something that would actually happen. Your neighbours would come and nail horns on your house if they thought you were a cook Oh! it's so bad yeah so bad isn't it such intense public humiliation and that idea is is really clearly communicated in this ballad it says that all the town may see our slavish misery let every man who takes a bride take heed and not be hornified and it also has wives gathering to meet and discuss schemes for their affairs it has wives telling their husbands that they are hornified so it, it makes it seem like extramarital affairs are a kind of form of revenge or sort of auxorial agency at a time when there was relatively little female agency around the sort of judgment culture that you get from sort of more middle-class sources is is a really interesting counterpoint to the behavior that we've seen examples of from the the elite circles
1: mm. yeah
0: but and clearly, there, it wasn't just like middle-class people have ballads, elite people don't have ballads.
1: Yeah, because Charles II yeah, exactly. loved them. And lots of the elite collected ballads, and which yeah. is why they're preserved, yeah. largely. Yeah. Um, another one is the cuckold's Condemnation, which has the idea that wives will be getting it on with their husbands' <laughs> younger, hotter apprentices. Or the richer men who let their wives have coaches that they can go gadding about in. It has a tailor fitting women's bodices while his own wife is having her bodice too narrow-grown, refitted by another tailor. Mm, da, da, da. <gasps> so shocking. <laughs> a butcher goes abroad, t- abroad to sell cuts of meat. It is made into a ram by another man while he's away. A horned ram, a horned obviously, ram. in Get case it. that wasn't obvious <laughs> enough. It says, more freely than a lawyer that takes a double fee, as well unto the poorest sort, as to the highest degree. He'll sing unto the courtier, as well unto the clown. He spareth not his music in city and in town. Is that the cuckold? Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, here we're seeing this idea that the stigma attached to and the risk of cuckoldry affects men of, of every social class. Um, the ballad goes on. It is the fault of the husbands if they do blame the cuckoo sweet. They do the bird abuse for wine and opportunity will make some women loose. (laughs) (laughs) I love this, like sort of original loose woman, laughing at and shaming cuckolds. It went beyond the ballad and the play. It really was part of public life. And I know we're laughing at it, but I think it definitely had a darker side, which we'll probably continue to laugh at because they are quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> there were community shaming rituals of, of cuckolds, and also of couples who had disturbed the peace by arguing. And um, These are called carivari or rough ridings or skimmingtons, in which a man who had been made a cuckold was put on a horse or a donkey, sometimes backwards, and paraded through the streets with people banging pots and pans to draw attention to him. They would also sometimes beat the men with spoons, jeering at the rider, throw scraps, mud, or even poo at the poor, cuckolded husband. Mm. And these ridings featured horns, so bringing the cuckoldry symbol in. It's like the most
1: aggressive neighbourhood watch it's you've so ever bad. had. so bad. Yeah. It's, it's, on, the, on the plus side, actually, though, I think Skimmington's did sometimes happen in cases of domestic abuse that's true so they yeah calling people to account in a public way although this is kind of quite horrible the fact that communities were so tight and so aware of everything that was Mm. happening in the household sometimes had a positive but yeah here it's just it seems really brutal to us you know the elite didn't get skimmingtons but There was this huge, huge stigma around Cookeldry. On the one hand, they live in this world of loosened marital morals, but on another, they're judged massively if their wife displays her sexual freedom. This attitude
0: towards Cookeldry really supports the idea that John Denham may have been our murderer. Hamilton wrote of him in terms of a cook old when he reports Margaret Denham's affair. He says, Old Denham, naturally jealous, became more and more suspicious and found that he had sufficient ground for such conduct. His wife was young and handsome, he old and disagreeable. What reason then had he to flatter himself that heaven would exempt him from the fate of husbands in the like circumstances? So, according to Hamilton, he wasn't at all happy with the affair. It wasn't an agreed upon thing between the couple, even if elite women did often have affairs. But other than being ridiculed and feeling jealous, he didn't have much of an outlet. He couldn't call James out in a duel, and the Earl of Chesterfield had earned even more ridicule than he had as a cook old when he sent his wife to the country to stop her affair.
1: Did John Denham then, feeling jealous, feeling desperate look on murder as the only solution. Let's look at the aftermath of Margaret's death and what that might reveal about his actions. We've already heard that he organised a lavish funeral, serving four times more brandy than anyone had ever had at their funeral before. And after the funeral, he fell into gambling and womanising ways. Yes, in September 1667, it was
0: reported that poor Sir John Denham is fallen to the ladies. He is at many of the meetings at dinner, talks more than he ever did and is extremely pleased with those that seem willing to hear him (laughs) so I think you get a really sad vision of the old guy at the party or the pub who you get stuck with and you really don't want to hear them ramble on about this thing they're rambling on about but part of you knows that they're just sad and lonely and they have no one to talk to so you just sort of listen for a bit and hope you don't get sat next to them again Yeah. That's really how I'm seeing John Denham here.
1: Yeah, he's maybe had some time to miss her. Did he regret his actions? He's sort of getting some type of revenge Mm. by womanising, or just is that Mm. something he's sort of, he's drowning his sorrows? He was no stranger to gambling and spending time and money at parties. When he was a law student, he actually even wrote a little book about gaming, which he used as a kind of fuck you to his (laughs) father, who complained about how much he was gaming and losing his fortune basically the book itself kind of shows that Denham had a really good sense of humor his oxford dictionary of national biography entry has a really great anecdote about him being fined when he was a student at grays inn which is for his training in law for painting out all the street signs and names between temple bar and charing cross mm. so which must have been really annoying <laughs> if you're trying to navigate it so dedication to your prankster lifestyle
0: yeah yeah, quite dedicated to the mm-hmm. Frankenstein life. So this is John Denham like, back in the day when he's young
1: and energetic and mm. can run all over London And at gets night. drunk and paints out signs, yeah. yeah. Mm.
0: Um, but I think it also shows that, you know, he was no stranger to having fun at parties. Maybe it's not a uh, completely drowning sorrows after Margaret has died way of behaving. Maybe that's just part of his life. His sort of track record of, of gambling and the the sort of fuck you track that he writes to his dad is is important because it shows that he's someone who could not only sort of weaponize writing as well as being lampooned by it, as he was in that very vicious Samuel Butler poem that we looked at. But this tract also shows a kind of darker thread that that runs throughout his life to do with gambling and, and gaming. It's called The the Anatomy of Play, written by a worthy and learned gent, dedicated to his father to show his detestation of it. And it was published in 1651. So it has this kind of mock scientific tone, which I guess is, is becomes more funny if you think about this period as a time of, of scientific discovery and investigation. Mm. It opens with the assertion that all his writing is based on his own experience. Um, it's really funny because it's so ironic. You know, Some quotations, gaming is an evil from which arises a most certain loss of time, of credit, of money. The bare name of gamer is enough to blast any man's reputation. And a gamester certainly of all men is most unfit to be trusted. <laughs> and it's so ironic because Denham was a known gambler. And he had had a reputation from the 1630s when he was at
1: Oxford uh, and from when he was a student for being a gambler. And he often got into difficulty with it. So when Mm. his father died in 1639, despite income from no less than eight... Inherited estates in Surrey, Essex, and Suffolk, worth upwards of £10,000. In less than 12 months, he'd run up gambling debts of £4,500, which is huge. Um, And over the next four years, sold or mortgaged several properties. In 1635, he had to return to England because of debts. And in 1645, Parliament ordered the sale of his goods to cover his debts. But he kept on gambling, losing £200 at New on a single night. So he clearly knew all the dangers yeah. of gambling, have written, having written a book on it, but was reckless enough to just yeah. carry on.
0: And uh, another important point from the piece he writes on gaming. So remember the John Denham as the Thames theory? Deep yet clear, gentle but not dull, strong without rage, the perfect medium. Okay, so there's another great connection between denim and water here. In his gaming book, he writes... A gamester resembles the waves of the sea, for naturally they are always either ebbing or flowing. So is a gamester's estate and credit, though with this difference, that in the sea, after an ebb, constantly follows a flood. But a gamester's estate commonly ebbs many times before it flows once. So I think denim is like this, ebbing and flowing... Kind of (laughs) slippery.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And also maybe kind of not afraid to take a chance. Mm. And Mm. murder is the ultimate chance. Yeah. Yeah. And he doesn't seem to learn because he keeps gaming and partying. Yeah. So yeah. Another point on Denham's darker side. He was married before Margaret Denham, which in itself is not a problem. Um it's not <laughs> really dark unless right. he maybe maybe he got <laughs> rid of her, I don't know. Anyway, uh his wife was called Anne and they were married in sixteen thirty four and they had at least two sons and two daughters. But Denham is not going to get Father of the Year award here. In 1643, when his wife was about to give birth, he didn't stay with her, but went to join Charles I and Cavaliers in Oxford and write anti-parliamentary poems. Although that's actually really normal, that men sort of wanted to be out of the way when yeah, their wives were giving I guess. birth. Even the Earl of Falmouth, who wrote always writes to his wife as like, my dearest dear, I love you so much. He loves her so much that he doesn't want to see her in pain. Mm-hmm. So he tries to stay away. That's true. Okay, so maybe that's not as bad as it seems, but to me, it just seems
0: that Denham is someone who's way more interested in his own reputation and political position yeah, absolutely. Than, it is, than his family. Yeah,
1: and he clearly wasn't very bothered about his children. No. So in 1650, he actually had to be ordered to pay one-fifth of his estate to the guardian of his children, Elizabeth, Anne, and John but as their mother had died three years earlier so yeah that's pretty bad Mm, he's not even looking after his children yeah i don't know if thinking about Denham
0: as someone who cares more about his position at court than his family makes him more realistically capable of poisoning margaret Denham. yeah she's potentially threatening his place in court (sighs) Yeah. yeah another important point on this side of his character that we should mention is his political life He was a royalist, he fought for Charles I, served the royal family. He was involved in negotiations with Parliament in the interregnum and the build-up to the Restoration. In June 1655, he was banished from London on suspicion of conspiracy. This must have been suspicions from Parliament because they were in power then. Three years later, though, he got a licence from Cromwell to live in Bury St Edmunds. These licences were quite unusual for royalists. And the fact that Denham was granted one shows that he must have been relatively in there with Cromwell and the Protectorate. But when Charles II and the Royalists come back to power, Denham was instantly in their good books again, despite having been kind of cosy with Cromwell. So clearly he's good at double-dealing and perhaps
1: at playing a part. Mm. Did he take on the ultimate part of... Murderer. What do we think? Million dollar question. In some ways, he's our prime suspect and we sort of jokingly said several times that in a police investigation he would be the Mm -hmm. prime suspect but, I mean, that is statistically how it works. He had, in some ways, the clearest motive. He has a history of reckless and selfish behaviour. His mental instability may have, in some way... We have no idea, but you know yeah, it may have been a factor that, in his, yeah, in his actions. There could have been some sort of episode. He left his bachelor life, which he apparently enjoyed a lot, um, and had quite high status in, to get married, and it didn't really work out well. He just ended up getting shamed as a massive cuckold, and as someone who had been really high status mm-hmm. all his life, had been seen as this great wit, that must have been really difficult to swallow yes
0: he was renowned as a wit and everything and did lots of cool writing but just because someone translates the Aeneid doesn't mean they can't poison their wife
1: (laughs) (laughs) we have to bear that in mind people who love literature it doesn't actually mean you're a good person
0: (laughs) and you know and also maybe he relied on his good standing at court Mm. on his respectability that he had, because of his reputation and his role as a s- surveyor of the works, being a poet, being a fellow of the Royal Society, maybe he gambled that his established reputation would protect him.
1: Mm, yeah, I okay, think very convincing. And also, I quite like this idea, maybe he used a more traditionally female method of murder, poison, so that people would suspect and hide. Or the Countess's Rochester over him. I mean, I'm feeling pretty convinced right now. So am I. But I always feel convinced whenever we talk about any of the suspects. (laughs) Um, And there is one more person we need to look at. He's been a figure hovering in the background since the start of the series. The zany Earl, Margaret Denham's socialite uncle, the Earl of Bristol. At the time of her illness, Margaret Denham was living with Bristol. So our suspect had to have access to Bristol's house. Was it Bristol himself? Did he facilitate someone else slipping poison into his niece's chocolate? Does this bring us any closer to the truth? Find out in the next episode of Who Hath Done It? listening to this week's episode if you enjoyed the show and you'd like to support the podcast head over and find us on patreon where you'll find extra content about this fascinating period in history early modern recipes making of the podcast and much more don't forget to like and leave a review